Well, really good to be able to just worship with you this morning. If you want to find your Bibles, we are in the book of Ephesians. We're continuing our series as we walk through this book. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 today. And I'd just like to ask you, what is God's great priority for his people? Is this priority just that we uh, survive, just somehow make it through this life, maybe experience a few different times of happiness and pleasure or some sort of earthly success? Um, There's a wide variety of responses to that question, but I want you to know with absolute clarity that God's great priority for his people is that we become a people of praise. We are made for worship. You see, God intends that we who are the created would worship the creator, that our joy and our delight are found in him, that we literally find our absolute identity, our sense of well-being in the worship of him. And this is God's great priority for our lives. And as we've been making our way through Ephesians, you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we found and saw that once we have believed in the gospel of our salvation, the word of truth, we were at that time sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise. At the moment that you believe in Christ, God marks you out as one of his own, and he literally invests his Holy Spirit into our lives. We never could lose the Holy Spirit. We are always united with him. But we found, as we saw last week, that God intends that we are filled with his Spirit. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 18, and it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or utter waste, but be filled with the Spirit. So in case you missed it last week, I'd really encourage you to go to the website, listen to this message, or on Spotify, you can look up Fellowship Bible Church, but God fully intends that we who are sealed in the Holy Spirit, that we live Spirit-filled lives. And he actually then describes what the spirit-filled life is like. And we see it in this next verse. We are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. We see being filled with the spirit leads to how we interact with one another. We're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but we're singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord. And just to remind you to, like, if you're like, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Just a simple description. It is the intentional dependence and delight in God and trusting in His Spirit to guide our thoughts and our behavior. And this is the ongoing practice. When he, That word filled, it's plural. It means all of us, that God intends that All of us are on a ongoing, regular basis that we are filled with the Spirit, meaning we're coming to God and we're asking Him, God, would you fill us? God, I want to delight and depend upon you. I want to need you to direct my thinking because I'm so often caught in the horizontal. I'm oftentimes going in the wrong direction, and I want you, God, to guide and strengthen and fill my behavior. And when we do this, I want you to know that God is worshiped. Because when we are filled with the Spirit, we worship God. Psalms refers to the the Psalms that you find in the Scripture. We're to be thinking of these truths. 
and talking about it with one another. Hymns speak of not only the greatness and glory of God, but specifically of Christ and oftentimes incorporating truth of Scripture. And then spiritual songs, why this is an extremely wide variety. It can be all sorts of various forms and styles, but they take biblical truth and they're used to exalt God. And he says, I want my people to be spirit-filled. And it's going to look like this. The heart of worship is in rejoicing in who God is, what he has done, and releasing all of ourselves to him. That's what God intends for his people. And I want you to know that God is worshipped in a wide variety of ways. He is worshipped in how we treat one another. He's worshipped in service. He's worshipped through the preaching of the word. He's worshipped through financial giving. But God is specifically worshipped in song. And this has always been the pattern because, after all, God has created us that we, the creation, will worship him, the creator. And this morning, what I'd like to do is I would like to just give you the big picture overview for you and I to see that when we become believers in God, we enter into a rich and long history of those who are a people of praise. And so let's just kind of begin with just some highlights from the Old Testament. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God caused this family to start to grow and develop, they were actually then brought into Egypt to spare their lives, Joseph with all the provisions there, But they were there for 400 years, and they became a great people. And there was a pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph. And these people became a threat, these Jewish people, the people of Israel. And so what they did is enslave them. And yet their number continued to increase. And their pain and their suffering was brought to God as they called out to him. And then God said, I am going to deliver you. In fact, you remember, there's a guy by the name of Moses, and he actually grew up in Pharaoh's court, but he had taken some matters into his own hands, and he fleed, and he is in the Sinai Peninsula. He is married, and he's got a job of herding sheep in the desert, okay? So you try that on for a job and find out how job satisfaction goes when you don't have water and food, and you got all these, your father-in-law's sheep that you got to keep alive. And it was at this time that God appears in this burning bush, And you read about it in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. And Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And then look what God said. He says, certainly I will be with you. That's all you need to know. Certainly I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you. That is, I who have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall worship God at this mountain. You see, God says, I am calling my people out of bondage so that they will be released and able to worship me from the heart. And on this very mountain, I am going to be worshiped by my people. The Hebrew word for worship is abad. It means to serve God with exaltation, with worship, with joy, with delight. And God says, I am calling out a people of worship. And you remember when God brought plagues, 10 of them, judgments upon the God of the gods of Egypt, and specifically a Pharaoh who kept hardening his heart. Do you remember that they, the people of Israel were released and they were making their way to go to this promised land? But do you remember then, then the Egyptians like, hey, what in the world have we done? And so the Egyptians then pursued them and they were going to kill 
the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were backed up against the Red Sea. Do you remember this? And then God provided this great deliverance. And I want you to know that no sooner had they left Egypt than they started becoming a people that praised God in song. Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then listen to this. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is mighty and highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. God was immediately worshipped in song. And so powerful was these, were these experiences, and it became the identity of Israel. In fact, God established that his people would have festivals in which God would be worshipped, specifically worshipped in song. Three of those, all of the Jewish people were to gather. The first one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover. Then there was the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and then the Feast of Booze, where Israel collectively would come and worship God. And so once the Israelites eventually made it into the promised land, God then established the temple in Jerusalem. And remember at the dedication of the temple, after Solomon built this immensely grand temple, this is what took place. This is about 966 BC when the construction of the temple started. And so after it was completed, it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 12, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals and harps and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud and literally the glory of the Lord descended upon this temple as all the people with all of their instruments sung with everything they had from the heart. They exalted God in song and God's presence descended upon this temple. You see, they were to be a people of praise. That is why they were created. So important was the worship of God in song that God gave them 150 psalms. The word psalms mean songs. They are found in the middle of your Bible. By the way, it's the largest book of the Bible. And these psalms speak of every sort of human experience, joy and delight and times of great grievance. In fact, there are many of the psalms, the, the psalms of lament, deep anguish, even at times where they can't even sense God's presence. And it showed them that we are to worship God in every circumstance. And our trust in him, whether expressed in great joy or just, God, you absolutely must save me, I want you to know that it is not based on circumstances in which God is worshiped. God is worshiped because of his character and in response to who he is. 
And so you find that there's great delight and great trust in God. In some of these psalms, they they actually had uh, clans of the Levites, these priests, and they were dedicated to the worship of God. Soloists, choirs, uh, antiphonal singing, orchestras, they were all, that was their life, to lead the people of Israel in the worship of God in song. And just to give you just a little taste of this, like in Psalm 33, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. And when it says sing a new song, it doesn't mean that you come up with like new words or even a new tune, but that you have fresh experiences of seeing the wonder and trusting God in the midst of your experiences. And so you have the worship of God uh, occurring all throughout Israel. In fact, they even had what are called the Psalm of Ascents, 15 of them, beginning in Psalm 120, all through 134. These were the songs that the people of Israel sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem. You always are going up to Jerusalem. It's on this high hill, up to the temple. And so these are a people of worship, a people of song. But you remember that of Israel eventually abandoned God, and God was very patient, and he sent prophets to warn them. But God said, listen, I will bring judgment. I'm not a God to be trifled with. And in 586 BC, after the people of Israel had already been kind of taken over by the Assyrians, in 586 BC, the Babylonians took over the southern kingdom, Judea and Judah. And what took place is that they hauled them off, most of them, into exile. And so while they are all throughout the Babylonian empire, what the people of Israel did is that God cultivated in their hearts a desire to once again learn who he is. And they began meeting together in groups. And they called these places the gathering together places. You're familiar with it because that's what the word synagogue means. The gathering together places. And this was their normal pattern. They would sing the Psalms. They would read the scripture. And they would have the word of God taught. They would have messages. And that would be then followed up by questions and discussion. So successful this was in bringing about a revival in the people and once again helping people see who God is. He's a God to be worshipped in spirit and truth that once they were actually given the freedom to go back to the promised land, back to Israel, guess what they kept? They kept those synagogues and they established them everywhere. If they weren't in the actual city center or the town center, they would be on the high hills and they were... Uh, created in such a way that they would have prominence and that people would see them. And they all had a very similar pattern. They all followed the same pattern of worship. So no matter where a Jewish person might be, they could go to the synagogue and the worship of God would be the same. And so there eventually was the development of the second temple. And then uh, that temple was greatly enhanced by Herod, began construction in about 2019 BC. And he turned that second temple into one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He, uh, he spared no expense. And I want you to know that by the time of Jesus, why this temple was fully functioning, and it was absolutely glorious. And so when Jesus begins his public ministry 2,000 years ago, he, <laughs> excuse me, authenticated to the world that indeed he is God. He did the works that only God could do. He showed that he was not only truly human, but he was fully God. 
He did works like healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, the lame that could not walk, he would heal them. On three different occasions, he raised someone from the dead. And then, of course, the most authenticating, glorious miracle was after his own death and burial, he rose again, just like he said, three days later. And when Jesus was here, and truly they were trying to figure out who he is, and many people were starting to think like, is this the Messiah? Jesus actually told them what actual true worship is. Remember in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, it says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Don't miss that. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This spirit is not referring to the Holy Spirit, but it's speaking of one's innermost being. From the heart, God is to be delighted and exalted, and he is worshiped in spirit, genuine authenticity, but also in truth, in direct accordance to his revelation. Not just worship however you want to go about it, but worship according to the truth that he has revealed. And Jesus also addressed the most significant error that was taking place when it came to the worship of God. You find it in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. And try this on for size. He literally called him out and said, you hypocrites. That'd get your attention. If someone called you a hypocrite, you're like, what? And he told all of them, listen, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people, they... Honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You're going through a lot of motion. At times you got the right words. Your mouth is moving. But Jesus says true worship comes from the heart. And this idea that you just take man-made principles and you just like start weaving those in and you treat them as the doctrines of God, that becomes the fuel for your worship? Jesus says, you have completely missed it. You look holy, you look religious, but your heart is far from me. And by the way, the word worship, worship, it's an old Anglo-Saxon word. It's from Old English. And it's really the combination of two words, worth and shape. And it's the idea that worship is to give shape to what is worthy. It is to ascribe God his worth. So to see God revealed in the pages of scripture, his acts, his creation, to understand the immensity and the excellencies of God is to evoke a response of worship, his worth being declared being demonstrated, commanding the lives of his people, and especially their songs. And when it comes to Jesus, here he is, the God-man who enters into humanity, lives the perfect life, dies as a perfect sacrifice for our sin, for the wages of sin is death, and he rises three days later. He gives genuine, authentic spiritual life to all who will believe. We who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, we who have now actually received His Holy Spirit in our lives, we are sealed for glory. We have our eternity secure. We have new purpose, new peace, new identity. It's all rooted in Jesus Christ, the eternal one. It is to bring about a response of worship. 
And so I want you to, to just give you a very brief history of the history of the worship of God and song in the church for the last 2,000 years. And this is going to be brief, and it's just going to hit a few high points. But I want you to know that for the early church, uh, they were basically continuing the patterns that were established in the synagogue. They made a few changes, but they uh, one, of the, one of the first changes that took place is they began meeting not on Saturday, but on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that was the resurrection day of Jesus. And so they followed basically the same Jewish pattern orientation, sung the Psalms, read the scriptures, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and they also then had them taught, and they were very clued in to the apostles' teaching. And they wanted these letters that were being released, they would gather them, and this actually became part of their practice. And then there was always a message, the preaching of the word. And so they, they did some things that were a little different, though, because now they understood that Jesus was the Messiah. It was a not, they would not compromise on that. In fact, as Jesus said, they started praying in his name. And the other thing that these early Christians did is that they... Uh, integrated the practice of the Lord's Supper, remembering Jesus' death and on, on their behalf, breaking of bread, drinking of wine to remember Jesus. These became the practices of the early church. And I want you to know that the early church was a church that was absolutely committed to the worship of God and the worship of God in song. Now, uh, I want you to know that and we see this even as you start reading like the book of Acts, that all of a sudden persecution of Christians started to grow in advance. And once it really heated up and the Romans really started coming down, they could no longer meet from house to house as was their custom. And you see that throughout the New Testament, addresses and, and thanking and, and acknowledging various churches in different homes. Once the persecution heated up, they started meeting even in caves even in catacombs, which are the underground burial chambers, underneath the earth, these Christians would gather to worship God because they had to. They must. They were compelled to. But as the gospel spread throughout the Gentile word, you saw this, and we saw this last week. It was an emphasis of being spirit-filled, and to be spirit-filled is to be word-filled, like you see in Colossians 3.16 or in our text today in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. But worship was a way of life for the early church. We see that, like, you remember when Paul and Silas had been beaten and then they were imprisoned in Philippi? It says that in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You know what that is? Why, look at our text. Why, that spirit-filled behavior. So powerful was the testimony of their lives and their songs. Do you remember that Philippian jailer after that earthquake? He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you remember what Paul said? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But Christianity went from being persecuted to being popular in the Middle Ages. In fact, a key date is 313 uh, AD, where the Emperor Constantine all of a sudden declared that Christianity was now the religion of Rome. And with that then became the, an emphasis like out of the caves, out of the catacombs, 
These little house churches, okay, no, no, no. We're going to need to have like much more grander buildings. And with that also then came kind of like a pageantry with longer and more colorful services. And one of the things that happened is when he declared that now Christianity was the official religion of Rome, you had widespread masses that now started to identify as Christians. In fact, they, many of them felt compelled to do so. It's not that they even really understood Christianity or even any of the basic tenets of the faith, but they just, well, well, now we're Christians. And yet they had come from their pagan mystery religions. And so what they did is they're like, we're interested in mystery. And so what they did was like, for instance, the Lord's Supper, which was a feature piece of worship. They're like, there's got to be a lot of mystery to this. And so form and ceremony became the important thing. There were all sorts of changes that were taking place, but the most radical change was with the Lord's Supper. It became the Roman Mass. Let me just tell you what this looked like. What happened is the communion table and just the simple form of, of actually the people coming and remembering Jesus, the communion table became an altar. The clergymen, those that were kind of leading, they became priests. And what happened is there became these barriers between what the priest would do and this offering and this mass and this sacrifice and the common people who started to become not participants and kind of where where the, the church would just all gather together for worship, but the people then become observers and they're watching these things. And I want you to know that this, that what took place, though, with communion is they entered into this whole idea of mystery to this significant point where they started to say that actually what happens with this bread and this wine, this is no longer just kind of a remembrance of Jesus. This is actually him. It's the doctrine of transubstantiation. And it's held by Catholics even today that This bread is now the body, the actual body of Jesus, and this wine has been mystically changed into his blood. And I want you to know that this was a radical departure from the New Testament, and this was a significant break from what they had practiced now for hundreds of years. And what happened was, this cannot be overestimated, this was a watershed moment. All these changes, now people gathered but they became almost like spectators. And music was sung, but it was sung by like professional musicians and vocalists. And the people could listen to it, but they oftentimes didn't even understand it. And more and more, there were barriers between the people and the priest and the mass and the altar. And things changed. In fact, it was like this for a thousand years, from 500 to about 1500. And with it came teachings that were completely foreign to the Bible, not only transubstantiation where the bread and wine become the body, the actual body and blood of Jesus, but then there were also like penance that you could assign punishment to people for them to demonstrate that they were really broken over their sin or meritorious work that you can actually earn God's favor. And so for a thousand years, These things continued to grow and develop, and great cathedrals were developed, and all sorts of separation took place between the priests and the people. Now, there were some folks that wanted to try to bring some reform and some changes, but changes really got started, and I'll give you a year, in 1517. There was a Catholic monk, 
and scholar. His name, Martin Luther. And he was at a point now where he would be able to read the scriptures. And I want you to know, like, it, it took a long time before you actually got to the Bible. You had to break through all these traditions. And he started reading the scriptures. And he was discovering that what we're practicing in our Catholic churches is very different than what's presented in the New Testament. Martin Luther uh, was, became so incredibly upset about these issues that he uh, wrote them down, perhaps you've heard of it, in these 95 theses on a uh, piece of paper and nailed it to the church door where he was teaching at in Wittenberg, Germany. And this was the common sign of saying, I want to officially discuss these things. These are a great departure from the scriptures. And, of course, you know that that didn't go so well. There was great sense of antagonism. But Martin Luther discovered that it is, the gospel is about faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, that righteousness is a gift of God. It can't be earned. And the gospel was once again released. And with it, Martin Luther then started actually writing hymns in the German language. He began translating the Bible into the common German so that people could actually read the scriptures and see it for themselves. One of his songs, I'm sure you've heard of it, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46. And so all of a sudden you had people who are now believing in Christ, believing in the gospel, and they're starting to sing once again. And they're singing songs of praise to God. Uh, another one of the reformers is a guy by the name of John Calvin, a great reformer. He actually took a different view of the worship of God and song. Where he departed from Martin Luther was like, no, we need to go back to the original and what they did, the early church, they sang the Psalms. Psalmody is what it's called. And now, like, like Luther, uh, Calvin took away all of the things of like the Roman mass, all the departures from the scripture, like this whole idea that you pray to saints, you pray to Mary, you're asking Mary to do these things, like that is not in the Bible. And we're not going to have it. That was never the practice of the early church. That's not the scripture. It is Christ alone, faith alone, sola scriptura, what does the Bible say? And I tell you what, these guys had significant teaching ministries. They were teaching people the Bible because the worship of God is to be what? In spirit and in truth, Right? And so you have, this became a pattern, a pattern that is still practiced even today. But then that takes us then to what we could call the golden age of English hymns. Anybody ever heard of a guy by the name of Isaac Watts? Anybody? We got a, we got a few, right? Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Isaac Watts. 1674, he was born in Southampton, England. His dad was a pastor, and he was a nonconformist, meaning he did not subscribe to the doctrines of the Church of England. And I want you to know he took his faith seriously. He was a true believer in God. He was trying to teach the scriptures. And twice he was incarcerated for his beliefs. And so um, as a pastor, preaching the gospel, teaching people the word, doing so in England where he was a nonconformist and his life was always kind of in danger, one time coming back from church, walking with his son, his son, Isaac, you know, talked with dad about the service. And at this time, you know, they were still just singing the psalm, psalmody. You'd have a guy, he was the church clerk. He was called the presenter. He would sing a note, and then everybody would start to sing the psalm. And so Isaac was saying, you know, dad, how is it that, you know, we, we just sing the psalms. We, 
we never actually get around to singing about, like, Jesus Christ or the truths of the gospel. And I want you to know that Isaac Watts's father, I think, gave perhaps the most profound response, one that certainly uh, changed worship throughout the entire church when he said this to his son. Well, then, son, why don't you mend this matter? Why don't you do something about it? And so he did. In fact, Isaac Watts would go on to write 750 hymns, deep, rich theological truth. All of a sudden, Christ, Jesus Christ, is now exalted in song. I'm sure you've heard some of his songs. A dozen or more have stood the test of time. Like, for instance, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, uh, or God, Our Help in Ages Past, or at Christmas time. You probably sung the song. You ever heard of it? Or Joy to the World? You ever heard that? You know who wrote that, don't you? Isaac Watts did. And at this time, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, a revival is breaking forth. And about the year, about 1740, you have uh, Jonathan Edwards preaching the word, and there were other pastors as well, and they're teaching the word, and God penetrated hearts. People begin worshiping God from, from the heart, understanding the truths of the gospel, and understanding that God is not a God to be trifled with, that God will bring judgment. He takes sin seriously. And there is freedom, rejoicing, full of life in Christ. And it was noted that in these services, there was more and more singing. In fact, there was one quote, they were abounding in much singing in religious meetings. And those hymns that Isaac Watts was writing, guess what? They made their way across the Atlantic by boat, and they started singing them in these services. And you would think, like, that is tremendous, Right? And for some folks, it was. Wow, they were just putting words and songs to the gospel that they were experiencing. But I want you to know that many, many of them rejected this altogether. Many, quote-unquote, Christians absolutely had disdain for this. In fact, they called them hymns of human composition or human hymns. And I want you to know that churches split right through the middle There were people that would stand in opposition, shut their mouths, express their grievance facially. I mean, that's always great joy when you see that. Or they would storm out and walk out. Because Isaac Watts, he might be a hero for you, but he was seen as a rebel that divided the church because of the introduction of songs that were not just the Psalms anymore. And so you have this going on. You have George Whitfield. You perhaps know him as this amazing preacher, and he was. But he was so concerned that the people would actually sing songs of praise to God that he would take songs that they would know, like they would hear at the opera, and he'd just change the words and fill them with biblical truth. And, you know, lots of people, they knew the song, they could sing, and they would. But it wasn't necessarily well-received. I'm sure you've heard of Charles Wesley and his brother, John Wesley. These are the folks that started Methodism. And I want you to know a lot of confusion in Methodism, but Methodism has really good starts because they wanted to bring people to a place where they're methodically studying the Bible. And they really had close, deep relationships, all sorts of accountability. 
And John Wesley is preaching and writing and he's speaking everywhere. And Charles Wesley is writing one hymn after another, some of which I'm sure you've heard, like, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, or Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, Christmas music like Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, or Easter songs that we still sing, like Christ the Lord has risen today. And he's writing these songs, and these are the experiences of the people. And so in the latter half of the 1700s, you've got this going on, and people are singing praises to God. And then back on the other side of Atlantic, guess what? You've got a guy by the name of John Newton. And he's a man who experienced tremendous change because of relationship with Christ. He had been a former slave trader and a captain of multiple slave ships. He was wretched to the core. He was depravity on display. But I want you to know that the gospel can penetrate even the darkest of hearts. And Jesus Christ gave life to this man. So radically changed was he that he actually becomes a pastor. And in 1722, he began writing a song that I think you're probably familiar with. A song, Amazing Grace, speaking of the release of chains and the glory of the gospel. What a wretch that I am, and I have been saved. Well, about 100 years after Watts and Newton and Wesley, let's say maybe around the year about 1859, you have what is called the Open Door Revival. And in 1859, there was a significant economic downturn. This is also the beginning of the, the Civil War. Literally, the country of America is coming apart at the seams. An actual line of division and demarcation is taking place. There's great despair, and people are in poverty, and it seems like their world is coming unraveled, and so churches just began to open their doors, and people would come in and pray. And with these open doors came this eruption of a new kind of music, a music of personal conversion, a music that spoke of one's intimate experiences with Jesus. And there were a lot of songwriters, but perhaps the most prolific and the most famous was a woman by the name of Fanny Crosby. And she, her music speaks of these personal decisions for Jesus. But I want you to know that Fanny Crosby was blind. She, at age six weeks, the doctors were trying to care for her, and it ended up a condition where she was blind. And just a, just a little hint to see, like, how can you make it in life like this? I mean, this woman wrote 8,000 hymns under 20 different pen names. She said this, quote, As I grew older, they told me I should never see the faces of my friends, the flowers of the field, the blues of the skies, or the golden beauty of the stars. Soon I learned what other children possessed, but I made up my mind to store away a little jewel in my heart, which I called content. And so her song spoke of seeing Jesus face to face. This is my story, right? This is my song. And so you also have like songs like Blessed Assurance. And, and then, of course, you have Ira Sankey and D.L. Moody. And they are leading evangelistic revivals. Ira Sankey begins writing all of these songs about personal conversion, like Rescue the Perishing. And, and D.L. Moody is preaching. Ira Sankey is singing, singing himself completely into points of exhaustion. And we're talking significant revivals, like 20,000 people at a time are coming, and there's all these people that are putting their faith in Christ, and they're singing these songs, Watt songs, all these different songs that are being written by Fanny Crosby. Ira Sankey's just writing song after song, and what happens here is that although there's a tremendous personal conversion, there are plenty of people that are yelling out 
These are human hymns, and they should not be sung. Well, that takes us then to what we could call the early 20th century music. In the 1920s, this is kind of, um, you know, the roaring jazz era. There's great prosperity in America. And there is some changes that take place. There are people that want to sing the gospel, and that's a common theme. you got a guy by the name of Paul Rader. He's a pastor and evangelist in Chicago, and he commissions young musicians to write songs that have a beat and are, like, easy-to-remember tunes. Not just chorus, verse, 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 chorus, not that. But write songs that once you hear them, like, once or twice, like, you got it. And I want you to know it has influence even today. But also, in the 1920s, you have in the Deep South you have this origin of music called gospel music. These are songs written and sung by African-Americans speaking of their experiences and the experiences of their forefathers coming from a culture of slavery. It's almost like a wailing, a deep, soulful song. But these songs also speak of a glorious hope. And they bring reprieve to broken lives. And the greatest of gospel singers, uh, Mahalia Jackson, I mean, you've got to listen to this woman's voice and the power and the depth of her singing. Or Thomas Dorsey, who writes the song, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. He writes this song after his wife dies in childbirth, and two days later, that newborn son dies. But I want you to know these are songs that spoke of deep intimacy with the Lord. Powerful. And then that takes us probably to the contemporary time, modern contemporary music, last 40 years. This has been a time, certainly, there's lots of songs that are being written. We've come a long way from Michael Rowe, Your Boat is Short, right? But it's all about genuineness and authenticity. And there's a lot of good music being written. But one of the things that we have to be careful about is that we, we don't just focus on the human experience and leave out the truth of God because God is to be worshiped in spirit and, anybody know? And in truth. I want you at fellowship, we take this so very seriously. In fact, our mission statement with our worship team. We refer to this regularly as this, leading the body of believers at Fellowship Bible Church in the united exaltation of the living God in response to who he is and what he has done. Why do we worship? Let me just give it to you very simply. We worship because this is how our God is exalted. This is how our gospel and the faith are expressed. We worship because our lives are enriched and our souls and the saints are encouraged. And I want you to know that God has called out a people of praise in the future. Do you know that when you read the book of Revelation and we get these glimpses as to eternity and what is to come, it is filled with those who are giving and declaring the worthiness of God. You see that in Revelation chapter 4. You see it? Let me just give you this statement from Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses. Does that sound familiar? And the bondservant of God, the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Friends, that is the heart of worship, worship, rejoicing in who God is, what he has done, and releasing all to him. And I want you to know it's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. That will be the anthem, and that will be the glorious reality to come. So I have just this question. What is your legacy, 
And will your voice be heard? So before we go into a time of communion, I want to just lead us in a time of prayer. So if you want to just bow your heads and close your eyes. If you did not get one of these communion cups, just put your hand up. One of the ushers will get it to you. But <clears throat> let me lead us in a, in a time of prayer. God, we come before you collectively as a body of believers here at Fellowship Bible Church. And we exalt you, the living God. We praise you for who you are. Would you right now just confess any sin, any way that you have missed the mark with your life in your worship where you've not been filled with the Spirit? Just confess that to him. Would you thank him for grace? Would you thank him for his goodness? Would you thank you, thank God that you have been called as one who's redeemed, as one who's to be a rejoicer in the living God, that you are a part of the grand history and present, the present people of praise. Lord, on this Sunday, we just continue to lift up all the tragic events that are unfolding in Turkey and Syria and just pray, God, for rescue. And in the midst of this great human tragedy, we pray, God, that the gospel would go forth and that lives would be rescued by Jesus. So, Lord, it's our joy and delight to worship you, and we do so remembering Jesus. And we pray in Christ's name.